Hello, and welcome to The Framing Effect. I am your host, Jerry Zhang. This show seeks to view the incredible implications of behavioral economics and business through undiscovered lenses. The Framing Effect in the context of behavioral economics is a term describing the fluidity of information. By framing the how, when, and where information is communicated, we will see how seemingly unrelated events and people are all connected by the overarching forces of different industries. Join me in conversations with experts in fields not traditionally business-affiliated to find out how the decisions of individuals may affect the world. On our ninth episode of The Framing Effect, we welcome a very special guest, Dr. Vernon Smith, the 2002 Nobel Prize laureate in economics. He pioneered the use of experiments to test economic theories in the 1950s, has since written several books on experimental economics, and is now a professor at Chapman University. In today's episode, we discuss Dr. Smith's recent work surrounding Adam Smith's The Theory of Moral Sentiments, and touch on some current event news affecting the economy. Now, Dr. Smith, how are you doing today? I'm doing just fine, thank you, and I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, so the topic of today's discussion will mainly surround Adam Smith, the theory of moral sentiments, which much of your recent work has been centered around. Adam Smith's main work, or the mo- his most widely talked about work, is The Wealth of Nations, written in 1776, which mainly details his economic philosophies of the invisible hand and laissez-faire economies. What made you so interested to study his philosophical side with the theory of moral sentiments? Yes, uh, well, thank you very much for inviting me. And I want to begin by saying that the theory of moral sentiments really got my attention when my colleague, Bart Wilson and I, who used uh, the theory of moral sentiments in teaching, we, we uh, assigned it to students and have done it for actually several years. And we realized that his model predicted the actions that are taken in trust game. And no one had, it was always a bit surprising that in a single play of a trust game between two persons, when person one passes to person two, person two can either cooperate or defect. And your incentive was to defect. That means person one should never pass to person two. In fact, somewhat over half, about 55% of a, of a substantial sample of 100 pairs, say, passed to two, to player two. And player twos, as a ratio of two to one, cooperate rather than defect. And since it's a single play, you wonder why people are not acting in their own interests. Well, it turns out that Adam Smith had a proposition that actually predicts this. So let me begin with that proposition, and then I'll sort of back up and talk a little more generally about Adam Smith. Adam Smith says, and and we call this beneficence proposition one in our book, uh, Humanomics, that Bart Wilson and I wrote. Uh, Smith says that actions of a beneficent tendency that are properly motivated, and what that means is I did you a good favor, and I intended to do you a good favor. It wasn't an accident or anything. Adam Smith says, seem alone to require reward because 
of the gratitude felt by the observer. Well, the, the observer is sort of, a, is not only the person who benefits, but Smith is speaking about all third-party observers. There's sort of a consensus agreement that if out of the goodness of your heart, you do something beneficial to me, that I ought to feel an obligation to return that favor. And, and Smith says this is because of the gratitude felt. So it's a pretty rich contribution. Now, I have a, a narrative I use to illustrate this. It's very much uh, an American narrative, an American neighborhood na uh, narrative, but I think all of you can perhaps uh, relate to it. And I call it the parable of the trash barrel. So it's Monday morning, and you're heading off to work, leaving your home to go to work. Before you leave, you, your trash barrel, which is in your backyard, you move to the front, to the, to the curb in the front street. And the reason is that this is, Monday is trash pickup day, okay? Well, you come home that evening, your pre, you, our thoughts are preoccupied with the day's activities, and you forget to bring your trash barrel in. Your neighbor is out bringing hers in, and she sees that you, you didn't bring in yours, so she brings it in for you. Uh, well, that's on Monday. The following Saturday, you are in your backyard picking avocados off of your two. You have two magnificent avocado trees back there. This is California. And uh, so you take an extra sack and you pick a dozen for your neighbor and take them over to give to her. She's not at home, so you leave them on her doorstep. She will know where they came from. Now, <clears throat> uh, notice the amount of information in this. Oh, and by the way, this is an especially good thing for her to have done because uh, uh, to early Tuesday morning the street sweeper comes through out on curbside and if you're and if your your uh, trash bill is there, out there you may get a citation well you see you notice all the information in this uh, parable a neighborhood neighbors know a lot about what's going on in the neighborhood uh, also, notice that I, I know that she likes avocados. Not everybody does, it turns out. Some people don't care for avocados. Uh, I know that she does, and she knows that I like them. So if she knows I'm giving up something of value to give to her, I know that and she knows that she did something for me that was of value, of value to me by bringing in my, my trash barrel. Uh, so this is an example, you see, of an act of a beneficent tendency. It's properly motivated. She deliberately intended to bring in my trash barrel. Now, now notice she might not have 
suppose she, she might have just gone come to my door and said, you, you left your trash barrel out. She doesn't do that. And in fact, that might have been a little bit critical to have, to have done that, to have told me that I left my trash barrel. So she, she just brings it in. Now, my, my point is that this, that this is a very common sort of neighborly thing that people do for each other. And here, Smith, Adam Smith, uh, based upon his model of human sociability, has a proposition that just very nicely covers it. It's a general proposition. You see, it's it's of the form Z, a person Z, or act, actor Z, uh, performs uh, action Y in response under conditions X to uh, another party in, in response to that. So so it's it's a fairly general proposition. Uh, Smith uses this proposition to deduce reciprocity because you see the concept of reciprocity is contained in that uh, that proposition because he later says, who of all people should we be kind to? Well, it's those who have been kind to us in the past. And so... Uh, uh, he says that kindness is a parent of kindness, which is a, a way of, of sort of stating, uh, in general language, this notion that people reciprocate uh, favors. He also notices he attributes it to an emotional thing. It comes out of the gratitude we feel. So it's... You see, Smith, Smith carefully distinguished, uh, methodologically, he distinguished between being self-interested and acting self-interestedly. You see, we we kind of don't we don't do that today. We we think that people we say that well, uh, people uh, uh choose actions to maximize their their utility and these because actions have consequences then the utility the, the consequences have utility or uh, you see he also distinguished between the origins of actions and the consequences of act actions could have human actions can have con origins that are not necessarily derived from the fact that those actions have consequences, that, that, that they, these, these can differ. Uh, and in, fa in fact, this idea is, is in this, uh, the wealth of nations. When Adam Smith says that uh, People are motivated by gains from exchange in markets. Uh, this creates prices and leads to what he calls division of labor. 
specialization because prices are known for products and for uh, forms of various inputs. Uh, this leads people to choose to do those things that they're best fitted to do. Well, you see, there's an example where people out of are, are following their self-interest, and but this has ends, or I mean, it has uh, it has consequences that are not part of their intention. So they 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 mean only their own gain, but in addition, they uh, they create prices. Those prices are known beyond the market. And this leads people to make decisions that uh, that that involve specialization, and that specialization, Smith says, is the secret of wealth creation. You see, so so he gets this this notion that uh, uh, origins are distinct from consequences. You see, really underlies that that. Theorem. Well, that rigid, that's originally in the theory, his first book, not his second. It's in the theory of moral sentiments. Uh, so, so now, now this has to do with uh, what Adam Smith calls the two pillars of society. In this case, it's, the pillar is what he calls beneficence. The other pillar of society, we learn from Adam Smith, is what he calls justice. Now, justice in Adam Smith is, de is defined negatively. That is, in the sense that the way you get more justice is to have less injustice, okay? Uh, and it's... Uh, not about beneficial outcomes. That's what beneficence is about. Justice, see, see, beneficence is about the good things we do for each other and uh, that we all uh, gain from. Uh, justice is about limiting the bad things that people do to each other so that the one Beneficence, acts of beneficence tend to increase our happiness. Acts of justice tend to reduce our unhappiness. Think of it that way. Okay, on the one hand, human actions take forms which, uh, which raise our happiness levels, that is, they're, devote, they're aimed in that direction. And there's another set of actions that are concerned with limiting the bad thing. So now what's Adam Smith's proposition on uh, justice or or you might call it injustice in the sense of, 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 of reducing these bad things? Well, Adam Smith says that, and this is just the obverse of the previous proposition. This one says that actions of a hurtful tendency that are improperly motivated, he says, alone de uh, deserve punishment uh, because of the resentment felt by the observer. 
So now we're talking about the, the class of things that uh, are hurtful and are and are uh, our immediate sort of response tends to be to to want to punish that at action. And Smith points out that this is so strong that if we accidentally suppose you accidentally bump your your knee on a uh, uh, on a tree or a stone or something. Sometimes people strike at the at the item. They strike out it as that inanimate object, which of course can have no feeling, and they do this kind of unwittingly. And sometimes then might feel a little embarrassed that they did that. But but that's how strong that, that motivation is. Well, this it is uh, this proposition that that leads to the punishment of harmful action. Well, Smith says, what's the most harmful thing that any human can do to another? Well, it's to kill that person, murder. So murder carries by far the highest penalty. And at the time he's writing, he says that all civil nations, he says, have laws requiring capital punishment, the, 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 uh, the death sentence for people who found guilty of, of, of deliberate uh, murder. And then he says, uh, the next most terrible thing that a person can suffer is theft or robbery. The loss of, 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 of the of, of, of things that, that belong to him. And then the final uh, thing that can happen is what he calls violation of contract, where we, in other words, uh, fail in living up to our promises to each other. Now, now notice that each of these uh, things involve property. Uh, if uh, murder is not controlled, it means you have no property in your body. You see, the kind of the first principle, if, if humans are to live productively and peacefully within each other, it, with each other, then you need to control murder. That gives you property in your body. Okay, you you are you, you are secure in, in your person. Uh, theft and robbery, you see, take from you the products of your body. So if you control theft and robbery, it means you have uh, property in not only your body, but the things that your body and mind produce. They're yours, so to speak. And, and you have a right uh, to those. And then the third thing is that when you enter into contracts and make promises, uh, you are held to those promises. And so that, give, that gives us property in each other's promises. We, we can rely upon all of them. So, so I think of these three things as the most fundamental elements of, of, of property. And of course this leads if you have property in the products of your body, 
that means you earn an income. And if you save and invest that, you get you, you have rights to whatever that savings and investment uh, yields. So that from that, you get a property extended to, you know, uh, valuable assets, uh, land and capital and all that sort of thing. So I think of these as the, uh, th th these two propositions on beneficence and justice as being at the heart of kind of, of what, uh, of the theory of moral sentiments. And this means that Adam Smith had a theory of society. Uh, uh, he points out that, that as between beneficence and justice, justice is by far the more important because a society cannot subsist among citizens who are at all times ready to hurt and injure each other. So unless you have that under control, and fairly, uh, and and you've limited these uh, actions, it means people now have enjoy a certain security from injury. Then beneficence has a chance to take hold, and and this then can lead to prosperity, to wealth uh, uh, creation. And all the things that we sort of as associate with uh, the, the the peoples of the world that are that are free, relatively uh, free, or have been becoming more free, and and we find them now uh, producing and uh, and and raising poverty levels uh, everywhere. So that's. These, these to me are kind of the important uh, contributions that you, we find being made by Adam Smith in the in the theory of moral sentiments, and I think it's 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 fitting on uh, this year. Of course, is the three hundred uh, year of his birth. He was born in seventeen twenty three. And here we are 300 years later, uh, still admiring and celebrating uh, Adam Smith. And that's, I think a lot of people think, may think of that as indicating that he's an important historical figure. But I would argue that he, Adam Smith is very relevant to our, to our understanding of our, the day-to-day -day world that we live in. He's just as relevant to that and understanding it as when he wrote 300 years ago. Now, if you think about that, that's pretty remarkable that somebody would, who, whose vision and whose uh, kind of thinking process was accurate and careful enough that he might still be relevant to to our world 300 years later, because just think about it, it's a completely different world in many ways, technologically, and we're, we're vastly more wealthy than we were 300 years ago. And, and uh, we have social media, we have all these ways of adding 
to our our contact with other individuals and in, and and living in the social world. Well, but the fundamental theory of 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 that sort of a world is, is articulated in the theory of moral sentiments. And I always um, always want to encourage people to read the theory of moral sentiments. It's uh, it's not easy reading. It's you know it's 18th century King's English, which will sound a little different. I mean, even to uh, uh, you know uh, right uh, people who for whom England English is a is a uh, well understood language, and nevertheless will find. Uh, probably finding a little bit difficult reading, and and part of it is the there's many words that Adam Smith used that are no longer commonly used. For example, the word approbation. He says that you see those two propositions I gave you on beneficence and justice, those propositions meet with the approbation of the com community. And approbation meant more than just approval, a approval, and but a, but a consensus approval. It isn't just about what A and B do, but any third-party observer C sort of agrees with the principles that are that are going on in 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 the relationship between A and B, so uh, beneficence is a proposition that meets with the approbation of the community. It expresses a a value that that is accepted, and similarly, hurtful actions draw the disapprobation. Of the community, hurtful actions that are uh, unrelated to uh, anything that the uh, that the person is is the, the person is, is is in no way deserves this sort of treatment. You see, those kinds of actions meet with the disapprobation of the community. So these are examples of the kind of of words that Adam Smith used. Use that have changed. Another word there is a modern English word, very common word called fair. Adam Smith, no such word existed in the 18th century. The concept of fair outcome, you see. Now, Adam Smith uses the word fair play once. Well, Fair play is not about outcomes, it's about rules. Playing, see, fair play has to do with uh, not violating the rules of the game. And so he thought, to him, uh, oh, the notion of fair was really fair play, and it had to do with the rules. It didn't have anything to do with outcomes. You see, Outcomes, that's what beneficence is about that. And so one who, say someone who would like to see uh, 
the poor get higher wages, who would like to see more done for the poor. And Adam Smith lexicon, that's about beneficence. You see, it's not about justice. Justice has to do with minimizing deliberately hurtful actions. Uh, uh, people can suffer for reasons that have n nothing to do with deliberately hurtful actions, you see. Uh, because of circumstances of birth and education and so forth, they may be disadvantaged. Well, but all of that has to do with beneficence. I mean, Adam Smith was a, was a person who was concerned about the poor, but he, uh, and, and this was why he, he, he thought that, that to some extent, people might feel a duty uh, to, to help others, but that this was coming from these, these uh, propositions on beneficence at the, at the bottom, you see. These were not top-down uh, impositions on a society. That these things come from the bottom. And in fact, if you think about it, these propositions, they are have to do with modeling free societies in terms of bottom-up rules. The, 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 uh, they're based on voluntary action, you'll see, and the discouragement of any sorts of involuntary uh, impositions on, on people. Uh, so Adam Smith's work, his books, the, the, his first book on the theory of moral sentiments, and then the wealth of nations in many ways applies to the economy, actions of an economic nature, uh, what the theory of moral sentiments uh, was, was concerned with actions of a social nature. So in a way, it's, a, it's kind of an extension of those ideas to, to, uh, to economics. And of course, in the Wealth of Nations, uh, Smith, kind of a necessary condition for the generation of wealth is a, is a, a property rights system which is, in, is enforced. And and he says, very simply, why do we have property in modern nations? Well, he says, it's because the rich have property and they don't want the poor to take it. So, so he says, that's the immediate reason why, of course, people that have property very much uh, favor property rights. But, he's, but the thing is, this has uh, Consequences far beyond just the protection of the rich. It also uh, provides an incentive for the lowest of people to embed themselves because anything that they're able to, to, to produce and create, they can claim as, as theirs. So it's a protection that is, is good for everybody in terms of being an underlying, you see, this principle of of uh, wealth, wealth creation. Professor Smith, on that regard, I'll... So, so anyway, uh, how's my time? 
Oh, you're doing fantastic. I just had a okay. question about in regards to property. Yeah. So uh, I think I'm going to, uh, you know, I'm interested in any questions that listeners have. And, but I think that that gives a pretty good introduction. I, I oh, let me say that, uh, of course, most people consider the wealth of nations his most important work. Interestingly, that all of Adam Smith's biographers report that Adam Smith himself was of the opinion that his most important work was the theory of moral sentiment, not the wealth of nations. Because he, see, he saw that as dealing fundamentally with human action. And from his perspective, the way you understand human beings is through uh, understanding the actions they take, their motivations, why, and how these actions are taken, because that's sort of the, that's the, uh, the glue that holds society together and what you hope from the authorities of government is simply that they will honor that and help enforce it and not interfere with it. Uh, and, oh, oh I might, might say one further thing. He pointed out, he points out that at one, uh, uh, in the early stages of government, when, when they're fairly weak, uh, government, the, the authorities very much want to follow the rules and norms that are being practiced in society. They didn't impose death penalty for murder. So if, suppose your son kills my son, and your son is apprehended, by the authorities, they would bring your son to, to my family and to me as head of the family and ask what is to be done. So in other words, the victim had a, had a very much a part of deciding what's to be done by the what's to be done uh, with regard to a uh, a perpetrator of a crime. And very commonly, uh, especially if there was any, if there were any assets, money, land, or wealth involved, uh, the uh, victim's family would be compensated. Now, of course, this doesn't, this doesn't really compensate you from the loss of a son, but the point is that you the, the community is, in part, going to punish the perpetrator by a, by a transfer that helps to make the victim's family more whole than it would otherwise be. So, and, and you get the impression that Adam Smith very much liked that mechanism. You punish through a transfer, and, and, and that, in a way, helps, tends to help the victim to some extent. Uh, to to make those that victim family whole. All right, I'll 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 stop now and see what sort of, see what sort of questions people have. So the in regards to property, I know that Adam Smith, like you said, is very much in favor of you have the right to protect your own 
savings in your own uh, financial property. And then, but of course, uh, even back then, you would have to pay tax to your government and they in, in exchange will provide protection of your other property rights, your right to life, your right to uh, your land, right? And so in that regards, what did, uh, did Adam Smith uh, support tax or was he a big proponent of taxation? Uh, well, yes, he recognized that there were uh, very, there were important functions that the government could perform and that uh, some sort of taxes might uh, be necessary to help support that. Uh, but I think she would also have leaned heavily in favor of, of, of charges that were sort of related to the benefits that, that people got. And, you know, he, he believed that there were, that probably there were certain public services like, uh, sewage, uh, and waste management and this sort of thing that uh, only a government, a local government, might effectively uh, 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 carry out. Uh, I think today, though, there's, uh, although that is the model we usually follow, there are other models that are probably more in keeping with the spirit of of Adam Smith's voluntary free association. And that's where a facility is th that you only need one facility, say. One possibility is to have that facility jointly owned by the users, a, a joint venture. So the notion of a, of a joint venture where the People are coming together and pooling their capital to create a facility to provide ser services for the whole group, and and there there are precedents for that in 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 the economy. For example, in the days when most major cities had two newspapers, a morning newspaper and an evening newspaper. Who printed the the papers? Well, there was a, a, a typically there was one printing facility, and it was co-owned by the morning paper and the evening paper. So instead of each bit building separate printing facilities, they realized that wait a minute, we can well only need one. You use it in the morning, and I use it in the evening, and we'll just share the costs. Well, you see that that is a a principle that uh, uh, that has potential application to uh, old, much more uh, complex uh, sources of of public benefit, like electric power networks, uh, natural gas pipeline systems. These these things. Uh, there's the possibility that those can be joint ventures of the users, structured in a way that uh, that 
uh, doesn't necessarily needn't involve government ownership or government regulation as we've come to know it. So I think that the way in which Adam Smith thought about providing benefits to people and and limiting and controlling hurtful things, I think those principles have possibilities for application uh, uh, using modern technology that are really much more sort of democratic or or oriented toward uh, sort of the freedom principles that that he uh, he articulated. So anyway, I I you know I hardly recommend that people uh, read the theory of moral sentiments. And and in fact, you can get it free. You go to the online Liberty uh, Fund, on, online Library of Liberty. If you search on that, you will go to the, you will find the access to what's called the Liberty Fund, and they they uh, provide free access to digital copies copies of most of Adam Smith's work and David Hume and, and all kind. I mean, they have hundreds of books, and that are I believe available. In fact, I have. On my computer, I have downloaded copies of of the Wealth of Nations, digital copies, and the Theory of Moral Sentiments, also his correspondence. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, no, not correspondence, his uh, lectures on jurisprudence. Well, and I just search them. So uh, that's I find that very con- convenient. So I find area things in the theory of moral sentiments very quickly because I remember uh, sort of key words that will take me to the to the exact location, like these propositions that I just described. Uh, you'll find them. They're on page 112 of that uh, digital uh, copy. So uh, I hardly recommend that to everybody because in, there's no substitute for just the joy of reading and actually coming to some to some understanding of what Adam Smith is talking about, and also uh, realizing the way he thinks about stuff, about things, just which is very different than the way we do today, and and in many ways it's more more comprehensive, and his propositions are predictive. You see, they're general propositions that have kind of variables in them, and you can take a particular situation, and like I did with the narrative of the trash barrel, and I put in uh, the elements of that narrative into that proposition, and you can see how it, how it works out. <clears throat> Mm-hmm. It's a, a separate question regarding um, the idea of benevolence. Um, did Adam Smith always believe that malicious actions were done intrinsically with malicious intent, or were those two sometimes separated? Well, that's a good question, and I'm not. I'm not sure I'm able to give you. 
put a, a accurate answer to that, okay? I would have to do a little bit of work on my copy to, to come up with a more comprehensive answer, but I think that the basic proposition you see is that you have not done anything that anyone should consider wrong that deserves a, a, a hurtful action toward you. So in, in other words, these are improperly motivated. That, you see, that condition leaves open. Well, it really leaves open to the possibility that there may be cases uh, which are not improperly motivated that may be justifiable. And uh, and I, I know that he has some discussion of that because he's really... He he always he'll state a proposition and then he'll give you the examples that tend to confirm it, and then he will look for contrary cases. He not not only looks for confirming evidence, he looks for cases that contradict that, and and he may discuss these under kind of exceptional cases, you see, in which. Uh, and they may have uh, particular properties. And, and the fact that he delves so deeply into it leads to a lot of insight. Let me just give you an example. He, he, he sent uh, another central principle in Adam Smith theory of moral sentiments is the idea that there's a fundamental asymmetry between our joy and our sorrow. The way he puts it is that anyone in, in, in say, reasonably comfortable circumstances, it's the case that the amount by which the person can uh, uh, rise from that state to a better state is small relative to the amount by which he can fall. So that all, almost everyone has the potential for falling far further than they can rise from wherever they are. And, and he calls that, he refers to that, this asymmetry between our joy and our sorrow. That also leads to an asymmetry between uh, gains and losses. And he essentially uses that principle. He, he doesn't cite the principle or anything at the time, but, but he, for example, he explains why the uh, penalty for theft and robbery is greater than for violation of contract. She, she, she suppose you steal $10,000. The penalty is greater for that than violating a contract that costs your somebody else $10,000. He says the penalty is greater. And he says the reason is that, that theft and robbery take from us what we have already achieved.
frustrates frustrates our expectation of gain. It's not ours yet. And so that's his exp explanation. But notice how that how sophisticated that is. He's thinking very carefully about how these propositions apply to our lives. And he's thinking about how they apply to the rules that we live up in in our societies. And here he's, he's finding a an anomaly, <laughs> so to speak. And uh, so he explains why uh, theft and robbery are more serious than violation of contract, even though they may involve the same uh, same amounts of, of wealth or or income. <clears throat> I read that another one of your inspirations in the field of economics is Frederick Hayek. I was wondering what the ideologies between um, Hayek and Smith are. Maybe some of their differences or similarities. Well, I think, uh, of course, they're really high sites of Adam Smith, both the wealth of nations and the theory of moral sentiments, although his discussion doesn't particularly indicate the extent to which he had mastered the theory of moral sentiments, but he certainly was on top of the wealth of nations. And uh, the thing that Hayek brought to the table from the wealth of nations, I think, is this notion that, that the pricing system, markets provide an information system. Uh, markets take decentralized hidden information, and out of that, prices are produced. Those prices now become public information and, and start to influence the decisions that people make, and those are, tend, to be, tend to be wealth creating. And, and well, that, that concept is in the first, if you read the first seven chapters of Book One of The Wealth of Nations, it's, it's really just about that same uh, those same principles, except that Adam Smith doesn't have the language of of of, of information, and he doesn't emphasize uh, in the way Hayek did the notion that that information is decentralized and that information is very important and. Uh, it's very important that that be aggregated into prices, and that's exactly what markets do. Well, with that uh, insight from I, and by the way, I, I was influenced by that much earlier before I read uh, that deeply into the theory of moral sentiments, because Hayek, you see, he had the he had the only theory in town that kind of accounted for my experiments. How they people, because a group of uh, in my early experiments, the information was all decentralized. I gave a private maximum willingness to pay values to the buyers, and private minimum willingness to accept uh, cost to the sellers. And so each person only knew, as a buyer, their own value, 
or as a seller their own costs. So that information was completely decentralized. And, and to my astonishment, actually, in the first experiment I did back in, this was January 1956, a really long time ago, to my astonishment, uh, if, if people traded by open outcry, bid-ask rules, they found that equilibrium very quickly because the array of those values from highest to lowest is the demand schedule and the array of the seller's costs from lowest to highest, I'll give you a supply. Well, they found that intersection. And I found that the first experiment, I could hardly believe that because you see in the middle of the 20th century, we thought, and it was widely taught in all graduate programs, theory programs, that competitive ideal was very abstract. And in order to actually attain that, people would have to have complete information, full information on the supply and demand. Well, here's a market that I had where each people only knew their own value or cost. They didn't have complete information. And here, and, and here it is converging very quickly. <laughs> well, we, what we, we quickly learned is, as, as that first experiment was replicated not only by me, by other people, uh, we realized that we were just completely wrong in the way we thought about how competition takes place. And if you go back and read Adam Smith, particularly chapter 7, because that's where he describes uh, price discovery by buyers and sellers, it's very similar to what, it's very comparable to what we're observing in these experiments. He, he didn't have any, he would not, Adam Smith wouldn't have any trouble believing that a group of sophomores could walk in the room and, and given the information I'd given that they would find the, the price. I don't think he would have found that, you know, that, that's, that's the way he kind of saw the market as working. And, and that's why I think it's still important to go back and read those first seven chapters, particularly chapter seven on the, the way Adam Smith thinks of, of prices adjusting, being adjusted by action of the buyers and sellers. And, and in fact, he says the prices start out too low. It tends to be the buyers that actively bid the price up. If they start out too high, the price falls by action of the sellers competing with each other. Well, Guess what? That's exactly what happens in the experiments. If you if you look at if you look at who's making price and changing things, if the at the beginning if the price is too low, or if at the beginning it's too high, you'll see us following exactly what Adam Smith's talking about. So he really did that an understanding that we didn't have three hundred years later. You see, all. Uh, or two, uh, two, 200 and, 225 to 50 years later. Was, you know, he, he wrote, Adam Smith was, let's see, he was 30, about 37 when he wrote The Theory of Moral Sentiments. And then he wrote The Wealth of Nations 15 years later. So hmm. he was still a relatively young scholar. 
time that he produced those those two books. Mm. I was at uh, Yale last summer for an economics program, and we ran the Open Four market simulation, and it was exactly like you said. Uh, how by changing the decentralized pricing, the equilibrium would change depending on if the buyers were competing with each other or if the sellers were competing with each other. And to learn that you had, you were the one who invented that um, simulation experiment all those years ago, it's, it's really astonishing to find that out. Thank you for uh, inventing that experiment. Okay. After the pandemic publicly ended, there have been a lot of anxiety with the American middle class. $2 trillion in wealth have been wiped out since the Fed started hiking interest rates. And ahead of the 2024 presidential race, economists project that there will be a recession. Do you think that the probability of a recession is inevitable or are we currently in a recession? Well, I, I don't think it's inevitable. I think it's particularly difficult time for forecasting because the pandemic and everything you see, we, we lost output, not because of problems in the economy. We lost output was because of an external event, you see. Uh, and the, the, the COVID uh, uh, infections. Well, that's a pretty different thing. Politicians just think in terms of, very narrowly in terms of, if there's a problem, then you need stimulus. Well, we didn't need stimulus when people were sitting at home and couldn't couldn't go out and work. They're sitting at home not producing any output, and uh, the administration, spends, I think, about eight, I think the figure was $800 billion to write checks for people sitting at home not producing products. Well, that can't be anything except inflationary, especially because whatever portion of that, that excessive spending, uh, which was, of course, financed by bonds, Whatever bonds were not purchased by the public were purchased by the Federal Reserve, and they purchased a really lot of them. And they so they converted all of that uh, that spending into new money, into cash. Well, that's you. You cannot. You don't have to be a genius to predict that that's going to be inflationary. And of course, that's exactly what happened. I believe that was a mistake. I think the central bank, you see, if the central bank accommodates the sitting administration in terms of whatever amounts they want to spend, they just make sure that it is fully financed and, and if need be, they create the money to do that. You see, if they, then it means that governments are not constrained in terms of what they spend. They'll spend whatever, you know, why reduce your spending if, if, if there's no constraint? And, and you see, I, I, I think it would be, have been better for all people, all involved, 
if the Federal Reserve had just let those new bonds coming in the market depress the price. That would have automatically given you an, an increase in interest rates just from the market and just from the action you see of the government. And that increase, that reduction, I'm, I'm sorry, the, uh, that uh, reduction in the supply and, and the prices of bonds meant, would mean their money didn't go as far. That is, the amount of spending wouldn't have, wouldn't have gone as far as it did in terms of the real things that it could buy. And, and everyone would have recognized that this was coming from this action of government. And you see, this got sort of hidden because the, the Federal Reserve accommodated that well, then comes the inflation that you expect from that. And, and by the way, I see all typically the economic function of inflation. Think about this case where the government here is spending uh, money and they're creating the money to buy whatever it is they're purchasing, you see, with it. Here, here they're giving it to people to, 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 to spend. How long didn't uh, how does the economy pay for that? Well, I think inflation is a is a natural economic uh, response to that. The inflation, by raising prices, it reduces asset value. Now, some assets may, like real estate, may move with the prices and not fall. But generally, wealth must must. Uh, be reduced, and and why? Because this is, the economy has to pay for this somehow. Well, this is the mechanism. Inflation is the mechanism whereby, you see, wealth is transferred uh, from people. That that is the resources uh, from that loss and wealth is what is used to try to pay for this for this in, increased spending. Resources have to come from um, somewhere, so that whenever you have actions of that character and the issuance of new money, you're going to have whatever inflation it takes to reduce wealth enough so as to pay for that increase in, in consumption by somebody. And so that's the way I think of, of, of inflation. Now, uh, now, if the excess spending doesn't continue, that is, if the government doesn't continue to spend way over what they're collecting in taxes, then that'll be the end of it, and you'll have a one-time increase in prices. Of course, if, if they continue to do that, you'll have further increases. And any artificial raising of interest rates beyond what is going to be done naturally in the market uh, in that situation. Any, any artificial raising of the interest rate, rates is just a, a means whereby you're going to uh, you're, you're going to discourage uh, capital investment 
and, and spending enough to bring the inflation under control, but you're also, by destroying this, uh, uh, a discouraging capital investment, you're, you're discouraging wealth creation. So we end up, you see, with, with less uh, wealth being created. And I, I, my preference would be to see the central bank take a more independent position and not me standing ready to finance whatever spending a, a current administration wants to do. And, and letting the market, let, let that effect hit the market. People then can say what, what the, the source of that market distress is. It's coming from what the government is doing. And then they can make decisions of whether they like that or not, you see. So that I think that you, you would get more discipline of governments in that environment. And, and, of course, there's a lot of governments around the world that inflation is just a way of life because uh, the governments are constantly, they can't tax the people enough to pay for their ambitious spending, so they create the money for it. And so you have just inflation going on and on. In many countries, of course, far worse than, the, than is typically in, in the United States. And the so-called banana republics, you see. Uh, <clears throat> so that's that's my view about monetary policy and and, and spending, and and because I I just think that uh, there's a lot of sort of built-in uh, market mechanisms that help to control what government does. And those tend to be overrided if you have a central bank that's always ready to finance, to, to, to just create money, you see, for the whatever spending their, their government wants to do. Is that monetary discipline perhaps the economic backing for why the Supreme Court this week uh, struck down Biden's plan to redact uh, $20,000 from each borrower's student loan debts? Well, there were a lot of, of course, other issues involved here. Uh, You see, for one thing, it's taking a particular group, a pretty special group, a group of people that are uh, college age and might go to college. You see, and they're uh, uh, and and they have had a loan program to do that. And now they're proposing to to forgive those loans. Well, of course, some people have responsibly helped to pay off that loan. Well, they don't. They didn't get any benefits from that. So you're hurting people. You're hurting the people who are. Uh, that were that were most conscientious in paying off their loans, and uh, and and if you do that, then why should anyone uh, do that? Why don't they just wait for the government to to uh, bail them out? You see, so it's it's really very bad incentives uh, to create in an, in in a world where most of our activity. Is is controlled by the decisions that individual people make at, at ground level, 
and because that's the driving force of most everything. And and I think it's very important to to to, to protect that freedom and to protect these rules that have a bottom-up origin. Uh, and, and, and in both of Adam Smith's two books, he's talking about uh, bottom-up kinds of rules that are coming from, from free individuals. That's all the questions I've had today. Thank you so much for sitting down for this interview. And your, all of your answers were absolutely amazing. I've learned a lot from this, and I hope our audience will too. Thank you. My pleasure. Have a good day. You too. Thank you so much for listening. And special thanks again to Dr. Smith for sitting down for this conversation. If you had feedback or questions regarding this podcast, please contact theframingeffectpc at gmail.com. Please look forward to clips of this episode on our Instagram at theframingeffectpc. And as always, don't forget to stay curious.